Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hey, welcome to today's episode, and it's a good one. Let me tell you, if there ever was a Mount Rushmore of CEOs that uh, fall in line with servant leadership, I would have to put the bust of today's guest up there on the side of the mountain. I got a chance to talk to Bob Chapman, CEO of Barry Way Miller, a $2.5 billion global manufacturing business with over 11,000 employees. Now, a leader like Bob Chapman, well, they don't come around very often, but I can tell you, and Bob would agree with me, that anybody can eventually learn to lead like Bob Chapman. He had to learn it, and so can you. And he's going to share some of the ways you can do it. So Bob co-wrote the best-selling book, Everybody Matters, with Raj Sisodia. You know, it's interesting to note that Simon Sinek, who wrote the foreword, he flew out to some of Barry Waymiller's plants because he wanted to find out firsthand what it was like there. And after experiencing that and interviewing countless employees, this is what he told Bob Chapman. I'm no longer a nutty idealist. I have seen what I have dreamed of. I dream of a world where I can tap anybody on the shoulder anywhere in the country and ask, do you like your job? And they would say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. So why do people love their job so much at Barry Waymiller? Bob explains that in our conversation. So let's dive in. So I am thrilled to be talking to the one and only Bob Chapman. And if you're not familiar with Bob Chapman, well, here's a starting point. And Bob's book that he co-wrote with Raj Sisodia, and it's called Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. We're going to unpack that book. But first, Bob, it is an honor to finally get you on the podcast and just have a what I imagine to be a rich conversation. So welcome to the Love in Action podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of have an exchange on something I feel very passionate about. So I look forward to the dialogue. Nice. So I want to start right off the bat with this question. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? You know, I think having read my book, as you have, you know, my journey has been from traditional what I call management to truly human leadership. And I get the chance now to talk about this in every facet of our society, military, healthcare, education, government, and business. And the feeling that I was given this message to share with the world that I think could truly impact the lives of millions of people so that we could have a a world where people know that they matter is an astounding feeling of joy and purpose. And it makes me feel at this, you know, somebody told me I'm in the fourth quarter of my game. And to think that I may get to leave this message on this earth with people so that we can live in a more caring world is a tremendous joy and a sense of pride and enthusiasm as I approach every day. You know, I was riveted by the book even before I got to the first chapter, Bob, because you had Simon Sink write the foreword. And so according to the story there, Simon traveled the country visiting in different factories and offices within the Barry Waymiller organization. And he said this, 
what I saw was nothing short of astounding. I saw people come to tears when talking about how much they loved their jobs. Why do people get so emotional when they describe their jobs at Barry Waymiller? You know, this is my 50th year at Barry Waymiller, so I have seen a lot. When Simon and I met for the first time, and again, I had seen his TED Talk on Finding Your Why, and somebody had said, you ought to watch this. And I said, well, maybe Simon Sonic would like to get together with us. So turns out our secretary has arranged for us to meet for lunch in Los Angeles. Mm. And within the first few minutes of meeting Simon, he said, you know, I've only got an hour. I assume that's okay. And I said, sure, that's what I understand. I had no expectation. And within 10 minutes, he said, you know, Bob, I could cancel all my afternoon appointments and we could spend the afternoon together. And I said, you know, Simon, I really got to get back to my wife for dinner in Colorado. So he describes it as the famous one-hour lunch that lasted three hours. But at the end of it, he basically said, it's hard for me to believe that it, it's true. And nobody at this time outside Barry Waymiller had come into our environment. So I had no idea what he was going to see through his eyes, through his lens. So when Simon came some months later and spent two days visiting our plant, several plants, And he said to me with great enthusiasm, I'm no longer a nutty idealist. I have just seen what I dreamed of. I dream of a world where you could tap anybody on the shoulder anywhere in this country and say, do you like your job? And they'd say, no, I don't like my job. I love my job. And we know from Gallup that the number one source of happiness in the world is a good job working with people you enjoy. So what Simon experienced, and Simon was the first of now many people from around the world who've come into our plants is they see people who feel cared for. Bill Urey of Harvard, who negotiates world peace, came in and said he saw the answer to world peace. And I said, you came to a manufacturing plant in the Midwest and saw the answer to world peace? He said, yes, I found a place where people feel cared for and care for others in return. So anyway, I think Simon opened our mind and began inviting people in and is today one of our biggest advocates in the world because he said he's no longer a nutty idealist. Hmm. So I want to back up a little bit to the beginning of your journey. And you probably answered this a million times, Bob, but there's a before and after story. So what were you like as a leader before this shift to placing humans first? And how did that shift impact you as a person and Barry Waymiller as a company? Well, you know, I have a very traditional education. I took management classes, I got a management degree, and I got a job in management. And I thought my job is to manage people. And I thought with my education experience, I knew more than others. And so when people came and asked me what to do, I would tell them. Or sometimes I would just tell them without them asking me because I thought that's what managers do. And yeah. you know, that's the way I was educated. That's what I experienced when I got into the workforce. And so I was a very traditional manager. Now I'm an eternal optimist, so I would not say I was an oppressive manager, but I was very much command and control type of leadership. And honestly, I saw people as objects for my success. Assembly worker, machine shop operator, storeroom clerk, you know, receptionist, engineer. These were all people. They were not people. They were functions. Functions I needed to operate my business. And I was nice to them, but I saw them as functions. And I was never taught to care for the people I'd have the privilege of leading. Because we define success in our society as money, power, and position. And the word management 
as I look back and I would have to say the definition of management as I experienced in the world was the manipulation of others for my success. And so these revelations occurred to me when I said, why can't business be fun? Why do we call it work? Why do we call it a job? Okay. And then I said, oh my God, we've got people in our care for 40 hours a week. We are the most significant influence in the world on people's sense of purpose and self-worth because we have them in our hands for 40 hours a week in our business environments. And finally, the ultimate one was the wedding story when I saw everybody is not as functions anymore. When I realized everybody is somebody's precious child that's been placed in our care and we will have a material impact on them in their home. So those three revelations converted me from what I'll call a very successful traditional businessman into what I, you know, Simon Sinek gave it the name, uh, truly human leadership, where we see leadership as a profound responsibility. But to exercise that responsibility, you have to have courage in today's world because it is not the norm in our society. Mm. So, you know, it's conventional wisdom and probably part of what CEOs or most CEOs are taught is that talent is the most important thing for a business to thrive. And so people get caught up in this whole idea that you have to hire the best and brightest people you can find. You take a totally different approach. You want to share what that is? Yeah, I think it was Jim Collins who said, you need to get the right people on the bus. And I've heard that a million times in my career. And I have a, a different variation of that. I'd say you need to build a safe bus, which is your business model. And then you need to find drivers who can drive that bus safely and know where they're going, which are your leaders. And then anybody that gets on the bus is going to be fine. Mm. Now, so I would say to you, to me, leadership is about allowing people to rise to the level of their ability and letting them feel appreciated for whatever that is. So again, clearly you need to make sure that you have people that believe what you believe. But I think most people believe in the goodness of, of individuals and want to harvest that. But then we go to work and, you know, we're trying to protect our jobs and protect our family and kind of play the game as it's been defined. So again, those three revelations made me realize business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply cared about the people we had the opportunity to lead, the privilege of leading. And it takes courage because that is not what we teach that is not what's practiced. That doesn't mean there's not nice companies where people are treated nicely because they have a benevolent leader. But what practices do they have to, to ensure that that's going to be continue beyond their time? Because I've seen many great companies with great leaders fall apart with the retirement of their leader. Hmm. So can we get into the, I don't know if even saying nuts and bolts of how to create that kind of culture is appropriate, but I want to get into the practical things that your managers and your leaders are taught, because you said that um, the culture at Barry Wade Miller leads to people feeling fulfilled and having meaningful lives, right? Well, yes. how do you create that kind of environment? I mean, what are the specific and practical things that make that happen? Well, about 12 years ago, a young man asked me a question. We were very early on the journey. We had created what we call the guiding principles of leadership, almost an accidental document. A group of people got together and said, there's something going on in the company. And we started writing things down and it ended up being a document, which we call the guiding principles of leadership. So we we're out trying to find people who believe what we believe. And so we were looking at this author, a gentleman that wrote True to Your Roots, which was about leadership. 
And this young man, when we were at dinner, he said, looked at me, he was new to the company. So he asked me a question. Most people wouldn't ask me. He said, Mr. Jamal, what's your greatest fear? And I paused and I thought, because I had to think about that because I'm an eternal optimist. And I say, you know, my greatest fear is we'd build something great and be too dependent upon me and something would happen to me and the organization that we were proud to build would fall apart. So I got up the next morning after that dinner because I didn't know I had that fear in me until that young man asked me. I said, okay, what are we going to do now that we've identified the fear? What are we going to do to give this every opportunity to succeed me? And I said, well, what do great religions do to survive over centuries? They articulate their beliefs, and then they have disciples who validate that through stories, legendary stories that allow people to embrace those principles. So I said, how are we going to create disciples? You know, I've never thought about creating disciples in a business. So we said, well, we're going to have to create a university to transform managers. And even you, Marcel, use that broken language because, you know, the word, I always say to people, why do we call people in business managers? Okay. Because name anybody in your life you can manage and name anybody in your life that wants to be managed. Why do we call them bosses and supervisors? Why don't we call them coaches, mentors, and leaders? Why don't we use words? Why do we use the word fire people in business? That comes from the old French firing squad. You know, that's not. So we have this inhuman language that leads to supports inhuman behavior in business. So I'd say to you, we decided to create a university and the brilliance of this team that came together with a clean sheet of paper. said, how do we teach people to transform from managers into leaders who profoundly Mm -hmm. accept the responsibility? So we began with beauty is we had no parameters other than we wanted people to be disciples of these principles. And so our team started creating teaching content. And what happened is we created what we call the leadership checklist, things a leader needs to think about every day when they walk in for the safety of those people in their care. And then our university would teach people how to implement that checklist so that they could actualize these practices. And what happened is one of our team members said, well, if we're going to teach people to be leaders, we need to teach them to listen. And I said, why do we need to teach adults to listen? We all know how to listen. They said, no, Mr. Chapman, we have to teach people to empathetic listening. It's a key to leadership. So our team started teaching this course, which is the foundation. Because I thought when you cared for somebody, you went over and talked to them. It turns out when you care for somebody, you go over to listen to them with empathy to validate their worth. So I would say a cornerstone of the transformation that Simon and Bill Urey and others have felt is they felt an environment where people felt cared for, okay? Not used, but cared for because they felt, listen, they not only learned to listen themselves so they could interact well, but they learned to go home and listen to their family because when we started teaching leadership, not management, but leadership at our university, 95% of the feedback was how it affect their marriage and their relationship with their children. Why? Because my leadership, remember when I graduated from college with an MBA, master's in business administration, Cynthia and I had six kids. So on one hand, I'm trying to apply what I learned in business school to this broken $18 million business that I inherited. And over here, I'm trying to be a good father of six kids, which is an equal challenge, right? And so I was getting an education on raising kids while I was trying to implement these business practices. And over the 80s and 90s, I realized that what I learned about being a parent is leadership. 
what I learned in business school was manipulation of people for my success. Mm. And so over time, we transformed many of the practices I learned about being a parent into being a leader. And I don't mean supervision. I mean, you know, what is parenting? It's the stewardship of these precious lives that come into our family through birth, adoption, or second marriage. What is leadership? The stewardship of these precious lives that walk into our building every day that simply want to know that who they are and what they do matters. And how do we show them that? How do we inspire them? So again, it started with simply wanting to send our people home fulfilled. And then we said, well, you know, we really want to send them home safe, healthy, and fulfilled. And when we started focusing on the individual, we found it contagious that when I sent Joe or Mary home feeling cared for, they in turn started caring for Frank and Nancy. And so we found it to be contagious. Caring is a natural instinct that people leave behind when they come to work because they don't feel cared for themselves. So it's hard to care for others. Hmm. Wow. That is so powerful, Bob. You know, it's funny. I, so this is going to be an interesting transition that segues into an idea that rubs people the wrong way. So I'm going to set it up like this. You stated that very way, Miller, is it extraordinarily successful because you were able to tap in to the true nature of human beings, which is the opposite of fear. Yes. So here comes that four letter word. (laughs) You're talking about love. And in fact, you even paraphrase another author saying that love is a competitive advantage. This would be crazy talk to a lot of people. So what do you mean by that? Love is the opposite of fear. And this is kind of the, how you set people up for success. Yeah, you know, the way I answer that is I tend not to use the word love because I think love is hard for people to bring to work and embrace it. Compare, And so we actually went immediately to the word care. Yeah. That we care for others. And so we actualize caring and we call it people, purpose, and performance. It starts with the fundamental responsibility for the people whose lives we invite into our organization around a purpose that will inspire them to share their gifts. And then we have to create value. If we are not creating value, we cannot be good to the people we have invited to join our organization. So Mm -hmm. they've got to be in harmony, right? People, purpose, and performance in harmony, okay? But it starts with our fundamental responsibility for the people whose lives are entrusted to us. And that means a good business model, okay, and good practices to send people home Uh, safe, healthy, and fulfilled. And we know for a fact that the person you report to at work is more important to your health than your family doctor. And we know for a fact that the way we treat people at work affects the way they go home and treat their spouse and their kids and act within their community. Because when people feel valued, they naturally value others. But when people feel abused, remember 88% of all people in this country feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. Three out of four people in this country are disengaged. And here we have, Marcel, the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Mm. We are at peace in the world at a record, you know, record peace time in our lives. And people want to have one of the highest frustrations in history. Why? Because what they're subjected to for 40 hours a week, because we have this theory, if we give people jobs, which means money, they'll be happy. Okay. And we're giving people money and they're not happy because money is not the source of happiness. It's a source of subsidence. You know, you got to have it to live, but it doesn't create happiness. Okay. And so what we 
backed into, you know, through these revelations that what people want to know, I want your listeners to, everybody in an organization wants to know that who they are and what they do matters. And our leadership practices we teach are ways in which we let people know they matter. And one of the, so not only is listening a core skill you've got to have as a leader, but recognition and celebration. How do you let people know in your organization that they matter? Through a recognition and motivation. And that's daily. How do you let people know they matter in an appropriate, thoughtful way? Because remember, when we're raising kids, if you don't give them five compliments to every one maybe constructive idea they can do better, they will struggle to hear the good things. So I would say to you that what we've learned again in raising kids is recognition and celebration is a key part of our leadership model. Because when you recognize Bill or Mary for their attributes and you do it in front of everybody else in the company, everybody feels good. It's that ripple effect in the organization because people see people who deserve to be recognized. We had a gentleman up in Akron, Ohio, who was recognized for his goodness I was up there and I said, how does it feel? This gentleman was probably 60. How does it feel to know that your colleagues nominated you and you got awarded the the Guiding Principal Leadership Award? And he said, listen to what he said and think of this as your father or your best friend. It's nice to know after 32 years that people feel that way. It took 32 years for him to know what he meant to people. And it was sad to me that he said that. Mm. Why wouldn't we let that person know along their journey that they've made a difference in other people's lives. So recognition and celebration, listening are two of the foundational skills. And then seeing people not as functions, but as somebody's precious child in your care. So we don't use the word love and we don't call it the privilege of leadership and the courage to care. Right. I'm going to stick to the word love only because it fits in with the idea and the premise behind this podcast. And obviously the book that uh, the manuscript that I'm developing around the ideas of uh, love in action as uh, not necessarily a squishy feeling or an emotion, but the verb love, which is backed by massive action, compassion, empathy, respect, inclusion, things of that nature. Now, you probably have a personal story. I mean, the book, there's so many great anecdotal examples of how that culture of caring manifests itself at Barry Waymiller. But do you have one that just kind of sticks out at you and say that you can just tell over and over? Well, I think the one that I tell over and over is we were implementing some continuous improvement ideas and we're bringing all of our presidents and operating people together in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so we had a large group of people and somebody emailed me the night before our meeting and said, Mr. Chapman, you might go out in the plant and recognize a team that has taken some of these initiatives of continuous improvement and applied them to a big project just to let them know that it's significant to you. And I said, well, why don't you have them come into the presentation tomorrow and they can tell everybody who's here to visit Green Bay. So these gentlemen walked into the plant the next morning to work in our assembly area and their lead said, you know, you've been invited to go tell your story of what you guys are doing to this large group, which they did. And so they stood up in front of our large group, you know, kind of simultaneous without any preparation and started sharing. It was all about numbers. We came together, we shared ideas, we worked together and we improved costs, we improved quality, we shortened lead time, and it meant a lot to us. And so, you know, after about probably 10 minutes of numbers from these three gentlemen, from our assembly plant, and I don't know where this came from, Marcel, but I looked up at this one gentleman named Steve, and I said, Steve, 
how did it make you feel? How did it affect your personal life? And he thought a minute because he was totally unprepared for that question because it was all about numbers. And he said, my wife is talking to me. And I said, I don't understand. He said, you know, Mr. Chapman, I'm thinking back on what it was like before you acquired our company and then this truly human leadership practices we've now embraced. He said, I realized that I showed up to work every day punched the card to validate I came there. I went to my workstation. Nobody ever asked me what I thought. They told me what to do. I got 10 things right and I never heard a word and I got one thing wrong and I got my ass chewed out. He said, I realized when I went home at night, I didn't feel very good about myself. And when I didn't feel very good about myself, I wasn't very nice to my wife. Now that you've embraced these practices where I feel people are listening to me, I'm contributing to making things better. He said, Mr. Chapman, I go home at night and I feel better about myself. And when I feel better about myself, I'm nicer to my wife. And when I'm nicer to her, she talks to me. And I said, Steve, we're going to incorporate the reduction in the divorce rate in America into the metrics of this continuous improvement because it never occurred to me before that conversation that the way we treated people who are in our care for 40 hours a week would affect the way they would affect their marriage and the way they would treat their children. And so that was a profound, that story has awakened me to the impact business can have on our society, not just to financial results, but the mood of people, our communities, the attitude towards the people we elect, you know, our frustration. And so I, again, how can we have this level of frustration in our country when we have virtually full employment right now? Because the way people are treated for 40 hours, they're used and abused and sent home every night, not feeling good about themselves. And that's the issue we face in this country, in the world. Remember, we operate all over the world. This is a universal truth. Hmm. You know, I'm having Rich Sheridan, uh, Menlo Innovation CEO, also on the podcast. And uh, he's written Joy Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. And Rich coined a term that he keeps saying that, talking about pumping the fear out of the room, you know, pumping the fear out of the atmosphere. And I, I keep using that over and over in a lot of the articles I write on Inc., but you're probably somebody that would speak to this better than any other person I can think of. Why do leaders or people lead by fear instead of care and love? You know, I had a gentleman that worked for me years ago, and he said, fear is the greatest motivator. And I think fear comes from the challenge. You want to keep your job? You better do this. And I think the fear because Simon Sinek calls it the circle of safety. People don't feel safe at work. And if you don't feel safe, you fear the lack of safety. So I would say to you, the environment, make people feel that they could get fired if they don't do it, okay? Because we saw 10 people get laid off. So people live in fear and they're really trying to protect their job because they have a family that is dependent upon them. So I would say, I don't ever think Richard and I, you know, are very much in alignment. We, we talk, and uh, I know he's very touched by ours as we are by his practices and his learnings. I never think of pumping the fear out of the room. I don't start with any fear. So I don't think we need fear. If you look at the people that you have the privilege of leading and you focus on a business model that will give people safety, people don't have any fear to begin with, okay? So we don't lead by fear. We lead by inspiration. Again, I was never taught to inspire people in school. I was taught to use people for my success. I was never taught to care, and I was never taught to inspire. But we learned how to inspire people in this journey. 
again, by some of these things that the revelations we had, why can't business be fun? So we started making things fun. We saw a dramatic change in behavior. So I would say to you, I don't even think about fear. And I, mm. I was astounded what, if you will, Simon and Bill Urey and Amy Cuddy and Raj Zodio said, because it amazes me that we, we run a traditional manufacturing plant where we built big capital equipment in the middle of the country, all over the world, but the plants that they went to. And that what every one of them said was, I have never seen anything like this. And I'm thinking, how could we so be so blessed with something that would be so radical to everybody in terms of the way people express how they feel in an environment where they feel safe, valued, and that they have a future. Because I say it is the responsibility of every leader to give those people in your care a grounded sense of hope for a better future. And then they will be who they are intended to be and rise to that level and appreciate it for whatever that is. Mm. So, Bob, for leaders that operate through fear and control, what would you tell them as far as you can't just flip a switch and go from fear to care, can you? What's the first step? It's a journey. You're right. I don't think there's a switch that you can flip. But, you know, the, remember, the big thing that people like about the visit to our company and, and our practices is these are not theories. We had these series of revelations that awakened us to a totally different way of leading. And so I would say to you, it's been a journey for us, okay? And we never intended to share it outside our company. It just awakened us to this journey. So I would say to you, people ask me all the time, what do you do about the people that don't get it? Because, you know, that's on everybody's mind is that person who manipulates others, who leads by fear. And I said, it's easy. Just treat them like you would like your son or daughter treated. I think the standard of care is because people will say to me, well, that's different. And I say, why is it different? That's somebody's son or daughter you're treating that way. And so I have never had anybody that I can ever think, you know, I've given hundreds of speeches. I don't think anybody's ever challenged me with a realistic question. So let me give you a, I taught the other day at graduate business school, I gave a speech. And at the end of it, the executive MBA and the MBAs asked questions. And this one gentleman who heard these messages sat in the back of the room. He's obviously, uh, given his apparent age, was uh, probably in the executive MBA program. He said, Mr. Chapman, I work for a public company. We have to show a return on investment. How am I going to show a return on investment on this? And I said, did you really just tell me that in your company, to care for people, you need to see a return on investment? And he kind of leaned back, almost embarrassed to this room of 200 people that he actually said what he said. And I said, how do you justify not caring? If three out of four people are disengaged in what they're doing and not fully sharing their gifts, if 88% of the people in this country feel they work for a company that doesn't care about them, if the person you report to is more important to your health than your family doctor, how do you justify not caring? And that ended the conversation. So I would say to you, to anybody, are you treating the people you have the privilege of leading like you would like your son or daughter treated if they were working in your organization? And to me, that's the standard of care because they are somebody's precious son or daughter that you're dealing with. And I would think you go home at night wanting to feel like you treated them like you hope your children will be treated someday when they're in the workforce. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, Bob, I want to transition completely away from the business of this conversation and more to the personal side. I want to talk about Bob the person. Maybe this will be the uh, cue for you to use facial props, (laughs) but I'll leave that up to you. (laughs) I want to ask you, what book are you reading right now that you would recommend? Well, honestly, I don't read many books. I, I get almost, somebody sends me a book every week and I'm so intense. I don't have the attention span to read very much. I listen, I read short articles on leadership. You know, I constantly looking at YouTube. I was looking at this weekend on YouTube. I was studying the medical profession because I've been asked to speak to 500 leaders in the medical profession on physician burnout. And so I my research was listening to what is available right now in terms of physician burnout. So I tend to use the internet to find shorter impact statements. Now, YouTube is a great source of information. So that's probably the place I get my most inspiration is for looking through the subject of leadership and how we can learn from each other in this journey to create a more caring world. Okay, I'm not going to let you off the hook on the book idea yet. Is there a book? that you've read that you can say, yeah, that makes the top three? Well, I think that's pretty easy. Years ago, I read a book called The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard. Mm. And it was, Ken's written several additional books around the theme of The One Minute Manager. And I was profoundly touched, this is probably 30 years ago or so that I read this book. But the idea, the simple idea, I'm a pretty simple, basic guy. And that book was very simple and very impactful. And I think that is probably the most influential book I read. And then I I had a chance to meet Ken a few years ago, and it was tremendously meaningful to me that he was so touched by the wedding story of my book. He he really wanted to talk about the wedding story, which uh, we ended up talking to a great deal in terms of seeing people not as function, but as somebody's precious child. So I think Ken Blanchard's book was probably the most impactful I ever read. I loved my chat with Ken Blanchard. He's going to be actually episode two of this podcast. And we had such a great time. The most, probably next to you, the most down to earth guy I've ever met. (laughs) Well, Ken Blanchard, you know, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Somebody once asked me in an article, name three people you'd like to have dinner with that are alive. And the first name, and I told Ken Blanchard this when I met them uh, a couple of years ago. I said, first name I mentioned was Ken Blanchard because the one minute manager really opened my mind to leadership. And I said, the second person I'd like to have dinner with is Ronald Reagan because I think he believed in the goodness of people and he had a vision for our country that formed uh, the foundation for his decisions. And finally, I'd love to have dinner with Jesus Christ. You know, what an incredible guy to have dinner with. And within two months, a guy named Ken Edelman, who worked in the Reagan White House, emailed me and said, Bob, I just saw your TED Talk, and Ronald Reagan would have loved the wedding story. Well, that really touched me because Ken worked intimately, Ken Edelman worked intimately with Ronald Reagan. And the fact that he called out the wedding story. And then I'm sitting at a San Diego at a Leadership Guru Conference, and a gentleman, again, about another couple of months later, taps me on the shoulder and said, Ken Blanchard wants to talk to you. He loved the wedding story. And I just had dinner with him. And I thought, oh my God, that's two out of three. And I'm not yet ready for the third conversation yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say to you, Ken Blanchard stood out. And uh, again, in terms of really the goodness of people, if you believe in the goodness of people and, and you take that seriously, whether you're a father or a leader, they're all acts of caring, caring for the people you have the privilege of parenting, 
interacting with and leading. And that's the kind of world that I think we want our children and our, to be a part of, where people genuinely care for each other. Mm. Bob, what's on your bucket list? You know, I have lived this amazing life. And I think my, the biggest thing on my bucket list, I think I have achieved, but I think I can go further. If you had told me that in my lifetime, I would be a part of the moon landing and I would have landed on the moon, I would have said, probably not. But if you'd said to me that all Harvard MBA students would study Barry Waymiller as a, in a required course called Leadership and Accountability, I'd said, no, I'd probably more likely land on the moon than all Harvard students. So I would say to you that that realization this year, that now the Barry Waymiller case study is studied by all Harvard students massively exceeded my wildest expectation that this journey, this eclectic journey that you understand, has led to a growing dialogue about leadership and the need for caring in this world and the healing that we would experience around the world. Because So I would say to you, how can you have a, a higher bucket list item than to believe that this journey I've been on is studied by Harvard students who end up going out in the world and becoming leaders in various facets and somehow we touch their lives. So I would say to you, my bucket is empty right now. Maybe I'll think of something else, but I just exceeded my wildest expectation. Yeah, yeah. As we wind down here, is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? You know, the thing that I think you could say is, because somebody asked us this who came here one time, you know, Mr. Chapman, I read your book, I visited with your people. It all seems so intuitively obvious that this is the way we had to lead. Why don't more companies do this? If Simon Sinek and Bill Urey and Amy Cuddy and Raj Zodio and Srikumar Rao, all these people came and said they'd never seen anything like this. Why aren't more people doing this? And that is the toughest question that people ask me that I think. And the answer is that there is so much from the very first of the Industrial Revolution it's always been about economic gain, okay? Mm. In other words, we gave people jobs with higher skill. We took them off the farms. We put them in the factory. But we never were focused on giving people dignity. We were focused on giving people money. And uh, so I would say to you that it's such a transformation in the way we think about leadership, which is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you, that it's just too far. I mean, I can see the moon. I know where the moon is, but I don't know how to get there. People see what we're doing. They hear it from the people. It touches their heart, but they don't know how to go from where they are to caring because we don't teach that in our educational system. We teach people how to use others because we define success as money, power, and position. And what we need to do is we need to teach people how to care for the people they have the privilege of leading. And that's the kind of world I imagine. So, I think, you know, that's my greatest hope is that, that these leadership practices that have evolved in our organization becomes taught in our education system. So we start creating in all facets. This is not just a business challenge. I speak in nonprofits and healthcare and government military, and it's broken everywhere. And the issues we face as a country, as a world, could be dramatically reduced if we simply learned to send people home feeling valued, not used. And the good news, it doesn't take a change in law. We don't need to raise taxes. We don't need to enact any legislation. We just simply need to care for the people we have the privilege of leading. 
And the key there is learning to listen to them and to let them know that who they are and what they do matters. And the world you and I imagine would be coming in the near term. Mm. Okay, Bob, this is your last question, and I'm going to let you end it however you want it. Is there anything that you want our listeners to walk away with today that will make a difference in their lives? Yeah, I think a gentleman at a large company after my speech one time said to me, Mr. Chapman, I agree with everything you said, but what happens if our corporation, our leaders don't endorse it? And I said, what do they need to endorse for you to care? Do they need to send a memo out that on Monday we're going to start caring about people? I would say to all your listeners, it begins by every individual embracing the profound impact they make on other people's lives. To see other people not as functions, but as somebody's precious child. I'll tell you a really short story. I gave my speech in Amsterdam to a university and there was some McKinsey-related consultants. They were a division of McKinsey. And we had a meeting with them afterwards. And one of the partners came up to him, you know, Mr. Chapman, I want to tell you a story. I said, okay. He said, you know, Mr. Chapman, after your speech, I was in a cab going to the airport. Uh, but the cab driver was not very oriented to the city, got lost several times. We we're going to be late. And I was getting very frustrated. Finally, I got word that my flight was canceled. So he brought me back to the office. And just as I was getting out of the car, very frustrated, I thought about your talk. He said, all of a sudden, I looked at that young man driving the cab, not as a cab driver, but as somebody's son. And it dramatically changed the way I gave positive feedback to that young man and that cab driver compared to what I would have done normally. So I would say to you that if we, in the people we have the privilege of interacting with personally, professionally, in every facet of our life, if we think of them as somebody's precious child and we simply treat them as we want our children treated, the world could be a profoundly better place tomorrow and we could begin healing instead of self-destructing. This is going to be a conversation that I'm going to be listening to over and over (laughs) again. There is so many great learning points and uh, I just want to, from my heart to yours, truly am honored to uh, have spoken to you today and I wish you all the best. You know, Marcel, it is, it's going to sound stupid, but I'm going to say this. I think in my faith, when I think of Jesus going from village to village and people gathering at his feet, when I get the chance to go around this country and speak to people about caring, I honestly feel what Jesus most felt like. I have no idea where these ideas came from that come out of my mouth in terms of caring, but I feel profoundly blessed that somebody has blessed me with a message that I feel could profoundly heal the world. And it's people with voices like yours that if we come together and we, you know, we personalize this in terms of your own beliefs, that we could begin healing. When my granddaughter was graduating from high school and I went to the graduation, everybody was cheering. And as each child got their diploma, I actually had tears in my eyes because I knew the world we were sending my granddaughter out into where there's an 88% chance she'd work for a company that didn't care about her. And you and I, with your voice and your following and your endorsement of our model, we can raise the awareness of the need for leaders and we can no longer use the word managers, bosses, and supervisors. We need mentors and coaches and leaders, people who embrace the profound sense of responsibility for the lives and trust them. And so I can't tell you how much Mary has been 
drilling me because she said, this could be one of the most powerful podcasts you ever do, Bob. You got to be ready. See, she was relentless to me all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) I made him work all weekend. (laughs) So, uh, Marcel, seriously, your article, I think, probably has done as much as anything to raise attention to this message. So thank you for your support, your interest in this, and anything we can do along this journey, please let us know because we feel very much blessed by your, like Simon Sinek, you're a voice in the world that people listen to and you have various mediums, you reach it, and we, anything we can do to support that because we need to create a movement Mm. for people who march together in the belief that this is the way we are intended to live and work together. So thank you. Mm, I appreciate that so much. It humbles me to hear that coming from you. And like I said, I think that uh, I like to think that in the Jim Collins sense, we're all in the same bus headed in the right direction (laughs) or the same direction. Well, who did you just say that? Oh, you said Ken Blanchard. I think, again, for me to sit down with Ken Blanchard, who I was in awe, it's like sitting down and going to church instead of seeing the priest, you said God. I mean, when when I sat down with Ken Blanchard, I felt like I was in the presence of God. And he was asking about the wedding story. So it was an amazing feeling. So Ken really began my journey years ago. And he is an amazing gentleman. So you are, I'm thrilled that you're going to get a chance to talk to him because he loved the wedding story. Loved the wedding story. He is Bob Chapman, CEO of Barry Waymiller and author, I should say co-author. And I hope to have your co-author, Raj, at some point in this podcast, because I think he's very well deserving of that. And the book is called Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. Stick around. When I come back, I have one key takeaway and an important final thought, which I will share after this short message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with the growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. So here are my takeaways from this conversation. Bob Chapman used to be a command and control boss. He admitted it. And the people that worked for him, he saw them as functions, as objects for his success. They were everyday people like machinists and storeroom clerks and receptionists and engineers. And Bob basically said, you know, they were all functions that he needed to operate his business. Because what he learned about leadership up until that time had everything to do with what he said, power, money, and position, you know, your status. Because Bob was ever taught that he had to care about the people he had the privilege of leading. And only that management, as he learned it, was for the manipulation of others for his own success. Wow. So one day, he had a revelation. Why can't business be fun? Why do we have to call it work? And he said, you know, people spend 40 hours a week here, and we are the most significant influence in the world 
on people's sense of purpose and self-worth because we have them in our hands for 40 hours a week. And finally, the clincher. Bob said, you know, he realized he couldn't see people as functions anymore when he saw that everybody is somebody else's precious child, son or daughter placed under his care and that the business would have a huge impact on these people's personal lives. So what that meant for Bob Chapman is this. Business can be the most powerful force for good in the world. If we simply cared about the people, we have the opportunity to lead. And it takes courage, Bob says, because that's not what we teach. And that's not what we learn. And it's not what we practice. So my last comment is this. It's a personal one. It was totally unexpected of me to hear Bob Chapman's praises of my work toward the end of our conversation. I was touched at the core by his words of affirmation for the love in action movement. And listeners, that's exactly what it is. Bob said, we need to create a movement where people march together in the belief that this is the way we are intended to live and work together. And I'm totally honored by that. But you know what? I turn it right back around to Bob Chapman and say, thank you for being a catalyst and a torchbearer for this movement and for changing the lives of thousands of employees. By the way, you notice toward the end that Bob mentions Ken Blanchard, who I referenced in the conversation. He says that when he met Ken Blanchard, he felt like he was in the presence of God. (laughs) If you want to hear that conversation I had with Ken Blanchard, that was episode three. You can find it at marcelschwantes.com and just click on the Love in Action podcast and scroll down to episode three. Next week, you don't want to miss my conversation with Claude Silver, Chief Heart Officer at Vanner Media. On behalf of Bob Chapman and the Barry Waymiller family and my awesome production team at One Stone Creative, who magically make every episode happen, thank you, ladies. I'm Marcel Schwantes. See you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.